Thanks for listening to this Ave Maria radio podcast. Be sure to share it with your friends and family and across social media. Building the church so we can bless the nations. This is Ave Maria radio. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. C.S. Lewis dedicated the first book uh, published in the uh, Beloved Chronicles of Narnia series. He dedicated it to his granddaughter, or excuse me, goddaughter, uh, Lucy Barfield, and he wrote, quote, I wrote this story for you, but when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you are already too old for fairy tales, and by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still. But someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again, end quote. Works like uh, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, these fantasies or fairy tales, uh, a lot of people think these are just fit for kids, for children, or simple-minded adults. But there's so much more, and uh, probably Tolkien and Lewis have done more than anybody else to convince Christians that uh, there is something to the role of fantasy, fairy, imagination in the spiritual life. My guest, Joseph Pierce, is the author of over 20 books. Uh, He is renowned as a literary biographer. He's written on Tolkien, Shakespeare, uh, many, many other figures, the poet uh, uh, Campbell. He's a recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for Liberal Arts. He is currently senior editor at the Augustan Institute. And his newest book is called Further Up and Further In, Understanding Narnia. Joseph, good to have you back. Thanks. Always good to be on, Al. Let's talk about uh, this whole charge that if you like fantasy, if you like fairy tales, that you are uh, childish, you're immature, you haven't grown up. What do you say to people who claim that? Well, the first thing I point out, and I do this in the book, is there's a big difference between the the childishness that St. Paul condemns and the childlikeness that Christ tells us is necessary in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, So basically, if we we listen to St. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, he he tells us in the Summa that uh, in order to actually engage with reality, we have to begin with the virtue of humility. And the humility, if you like, imbues us with the gratitude that opens the sense to wonder, and it's wonder that leads us to that level of contemplation that dilates the soul into the fullness of the presence of the real. So in other words, we have to be able to see reality uh, with a spirit of wonder. And what uh, what great fantasy does, it actually allows us to do that. In, in Tolkien's word, it, it allows us to recover a clear vision of things. So um, could one say, if, if, la- if one lacks uh, wonder, in his or her understanding of the world that one is in some way handicapped from seeing reality? Oh, absolutely. Basi- yeah, basically, if someone lacks wonder, it's, it's indicative 
of the presence of the sin of pride. And, and Jane Austen knew what she was talking about when she juxtapo- juxtaposed pride and prejudice. Because what pride does, it actually distorts our vision of the real because we see it through our own narcissistic lens. Uh, in other words, we distort it through our own prejudice. If we want to see things as they really are, which includes, of course, the good, the true, and the beautiful in all things, we have to open our eyes to wonder. And that's only possible if we gain the sense of humility that's necessary to do that. Hmm. Do, do, do these, uh, so th- do these stories then, these fairy tales, uh, these fantasies, do they inevitably grow out of that sense of wonder? Is, is that the author who's great at fairy, uh, is he also a, a person who's great at wonder? Yes, I think certainly those that are very good at the one are very good at the other. Okay. Uh, you know, as, uh, as Gerard Manny Hopkins said, um, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. And I think that those that, that tell great uh, fairy stories, shall we say, such as the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings, are those that see reality with these eyes wide open to wonder, and therefore they see the reality that's beneath the surface or beyond the surface, if you like, the metaphysics that underpins the physics. You know, I I remember when you pointed out to me way back uh, in the late 1990s that Lord of the Rings had been uh, voted the greatest book of the century in a nationwide poll in the United Kingdom. Um... That was shocking to me, and I think one of the reasons it was shocking to me is because I had assumed that uh, when you talk about greatest books or greatest literature, that somehow you you can't possibly mean fantasy. Uh, is there a there is is there prejudice against fantasy in literary circles? Well, I think there's two things. First of all, up to a point, you were quite. Uh, um, right to be suspicious of the fantasy genre, because what Tolkien and Lewis did was establish, or at least to, to greatly popularize the genre. And of course, many of the works that in that genre now, unworthy of, uh, of, of Tolkien or Lewis, yeah. and certainly would be offensive to Christianity. So we do need to distinguish something's not good because it's fantasy. Right, um, right, right. You know, the, the fantasy, fantasy has to be informed by the deep Christianity. But The Lord of the Rings, really, Tolkien would have, uh, would have called it an epic. It's, it's a prose yes. epic, so in, in many respects we should see it in light of, uh, of works such as Homer uh, and Virgil. Uh, and in that sense, we can sort of, if you get some idea of the majesty of it and therefore um, the greatness of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chesterton said that fairy tales are as normal as milk or bread. Civilization changes, but fairy tales never change. Is that true? Does a fairy tale work? I, well, I think, I think in their essence in their being, it is very true, because basically what fairy stories do is to deal with the perennial nature of things. So in other words, the permanent things, uh, the metaphysical things, that human nature in its unchanging sense of, of being both uh, made in the image of God, but, but broken by, uh, by the fall into, into the tendency towards concupiscence. And that struggle, that tension in the heart of every human uh, person is something which, which fairy stories fairy stories deal with, that struggle between good and evil, and, and also the path of uh, self-sacrifice, the path of love, which is necessary in order to live happily ever after. Mm. Uh, fairy tales are a, a preferred way of teaching, um, I don't know, moral education? 
Well, I think so, but partly because they do deal with these with these permanent things. But the other thing that they do is to exercise the imagination. And, you know, we could get deep here, but if you go, you go back to uh, Saint Augustine's De Doctrina Christiana, Christiana mm-hmm. you know, on Christian doctrine, he basically talks about the way that uh, that uh, that. Uh, all language, every word is a signifier. In other words, every word is something which signifies something else. There's yes. an allegorical dimension to thought, and therefore we have to exercise our imagination. And I do think that uh, that being brought up with fairy stories exercises the uh, the, the imagination, which is in which is inseparable from that from our creative uh, uh, capabilities and our ability to see things uh, with that sense of wonder, which is necessary. So I think fairy stories should be a, a, a an integral part of every child's education. Uh, do, so these these fairy stories are to show us not merely what's possible, but what's desirable. Exactly. Couldn't have put it better myself, Al. Yeah, basically... Well, I think you put it, it that way in the book, us, actually. Uh, <laughs> I think you did put it that way in the book. <laughs> I give credit where credit is due here. <laughs> well, thanks for your humility in, 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 in that, that confession then, Al. <laughs> No, but I think this is interesting because they, I think there is a, a certain magic uh, to these uh, the fairy tale to fantasy. It's just as special because they they not only when you read them you become aware of not only possibilities but of something that ought to be and and want you want to desire the outcome. You want to desire. Um, the, uh, the, the the sleeping beauty to be uh, awakened again by love. Uh, so you lo- you want to see those outcomes, and the question that the quote adult has to the wondering child who enjoys the fantasy, the adult wants to say that's not the way reality is. Sleeping beauty doesn't awaken to life by the kiss of love. Well, how do we push back against that? Well, I mean, uh, that, that's, that particular uh, uh, claim, I would merely say that you can say that the sleeping duty to be awakened by the kiss of love is, is uh, analogous to, uh, to all of us being uh, open to the resurrection through the kiss right. of love, which was the cross. Right. So certainly you can see an, an analogies with, with Christianity in that. But in, 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 a, in a broader sense, I would say that in a philosophical sense, we do need to judge imperfection from the perspective of perfection. The fact that we are imperfect, the fact that we fail, uh, does not, uh, that's not uh, the ultimate reality. The yes. ultimate reality yes, is good. because we're failing, we know it's in relation to something that we're failing at. So we, 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 need, we need to see things in, 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 from the perspective of the, the fullness of reality, which, which, is the, which is perfection, ultimately God, uh, and not to judge it by our own, um, should we say, uh, less than perfect standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guest is uh, Joseph Pierce. We're looking at uh, his newest work, Further Up and Further In, Understanding Narnia. You know what we didn't do, and I meant to do this at the very beginning, Joseph, uh, and that is uh, to, to, to go over the controversy, as some people would put it, over how the Chronicles of Narnia ought to be read. Uh, there's the way they were published, and then there's, uh, you mentioned that Walter Hooper, who arguably is the greatest scholar in this area, uh, he claims that Lewis wanted the books read differently than they were published. Can you tell us what that's about? Yeah, and, and to be fair to Walter Hooper, he actually quotes a letter from C.S. Lewis where C.S. Lewis says that. Um, basically, the, 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 uh, the, 
the issue we have when we approach the Chronicles of Narnia is do we read them in, in, the, issue, in the order in which they were written, or do we read them in the order of the story? Um, and I've chosen in my own book to follow what I do believe to be Lewis's own uh, desire and intention, to follow it in the order of the story, not in the order in which they were written. And I've had many arguments with people that disagree with me. <laughs> I and bet you have, yeah. I think you, if, you, if, yeah, if you want to read it in the order in which they were written, that's if you're actually studying the Chronicles of Narnia as a scholar. But if you're reading them either to your own children or for your own pleasure and leisure, uh, I, I, I would suggest that, you know, read it in, according to the chronology. Um, and, and, and in that way, you know, stories, generally speaking, are better if you start at the beginning and you, and you have a middle and you have an end. And, and, and I think that you begin with The Magician's Nephew, which is the creation of Narnia, and the Alpha, if you like, and okay. you end with The Last Battle, which is the Apocalypse, the Omega. And it makes sense, really, to take the story in that order. Okay, so it's Magician's Nephew... Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, A Horse and His Boy, Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Silver Chair, and The Last Battle. That's the Lewis Order. That's the Lewis Order, okay. absolutely, yeah. If you want me, if you, if you, as, you, as you made a confession earlier, Al, I will make one confession. <laughs> that when I read the Chronicles of Narnia to my own uh, daughter, and when I've read them to her twice, I actually start with the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. <laughs> I do think that's the best place to start. Then we revert to Magician's Nephew and gotcha. the people, and then we go through the rest in, 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 in the order which you've just read. Very good. Yeah, I think so many of us started with the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. It's hard to shake that. I'm Al Cresta with Joseph Pierce. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Joseph Pierce, a literary biographer, author of over 20 books, and we're looking at his most recent work, Further Up and Further In, Understanding Narnia. You know, Joseph, I remember in the 1970s, shortly after I became a Christian, learning to love Lewis, uh, who was a, had a big role in my own conversion to Christian faith, and then actually in his own way helped me uh, see the, re the truth of the Catholic faith. But I did not imagine at that time and I don't know when it finally dawned on me how wrong I was, I didn't think that Lewis would continue to grow in stature. I mean, he had died in 1963. He himself didn't expect that his work was necessarily going to be long-lasting. But he is more popular today, more influential today, than I think he's ever been. Is that true? Oh, I think it's absolutely true. Uh, I, I think it was Walter Hooper that coined the phrase uh, the C.S. Lewis industry. Yeah. Uh, and I think it, 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 it's wonderful the fact that, you know, that Lewis uh, certainly uh, believed that he would be forgotten within a generation. If somebody, if you like, that made a, 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 a minor impact on his own generation would be forgotten thereafter. There's something wonderful about his humility. Um, uh, but, as you rightly say, he's grown in stature. And he's grown in stature because he speaks to... Uh, to our generation, you know, to the modern world, to the modern doubts, to the, you know, he, he lived in a, a culture of atheism and agnosticism and doubt and skepticism and nihilism, um, and, and he addressed that. And so I think he speaks in a language which, which is very much in tune with the particular, as we say, heresies and foibles of our own time and allows us to, if you see, penetrate the fogs of those uh, you know fallacious philosophies uh, and, and and penetrate into the into the fullness of the reality, which ultimately, of course, leads to God. Yeah, 
you begin with the magician's nephew in the book as the the prior to the line the witch in the wardrobe it's a story of the creation of narnia and on the first page of the magician's nephew uh you point out uh, he points out that the story takes place in the days quote when mr sherlock holmes was still living in baker street and the uh, bastables uh, were looking for treasure uh in the lewisham road uh that's fairly unusual for, for Lewis, isn't it, in his, in his works of fiction, to have references to other uh, sources like this? Well, I think there's something charming there, because what he's actually doing, uh, you know, he, he's giving us an historical reference in real time. It basically dates the beginning of the story at the turn of the 20th century, because that's when uh, uh, those works of literature were being published. But, of course, he's talking about fictional characters. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so Sherlock Holmes is really living in London at the time that the story <laughs> begins, you know, and the Bastable children are, are searching for treasure in South London. So, in, in other words, you know, we're entering uh, a real London in a real time at the turn of the 20th century, but it's already, if you like, a world which is uh, uh, imbued with wonder because these fictional characters are really walking around. You know, when Jill and Eustace, uh, uh, sorry, not Jill and Eustace, what I'm talking about here. Um, ah, beginning of the, the first two characters. Um, is it Andrew? Polly and Diggory. Diggory, um, yes. You know, when, 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 they, when they're children, that, that's the world in which, in which they're living. It's already a world, if you like, alive with wonder. Um, so is, is that an eternal now? Well, I think both. I mean, it's incarnational, all right? So in the sense that, you know, Christ uh, was on earth at a particular time, but what he did or does, if you like, is, is eternal. It's something of that omnipresence, the eternal presence yeah. of God uh, throughout time. Uh, and in that sense, yes, the, 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 the story is set incarnationally at a particular time in London, but it's already a, a London which is full of, uh, if you like, a metaphysical dimension which transcends the purely physical. So it's both, it's incarnational and transcendent at the same, at time, the same time, which is, again, what reality is. Yeah. Yes, yes, no, no, I, 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 get, the, I get that point. Uh, when Lewis uh, has actually, in That Hideous Strength, wrote quite a bit about the, the dangers of scientism or uh, the, the techno technocracy, um, does that, uh, would you say that the, the Chronicles of Narnia and really, I guess, all of his fiction work, is that an implicit uh, invitation to go beyond uh, scientism and technocracy, the, this idea that somehow only reality is what the sciences show us, the natural sciences show us, and uh, all that's worth striving for is what we can achieve technologically? Absolutely. That's certainly a recurring motif in, in all of Lewis's works, both his fiction and his nonfiction. But it also, if you like, indicates why the Chronicles of Narnia uh, are books that we should return to as adults or, or read for the first time, even if we haven't read them. I didn't read the Chronicles of Narnia for, for the first time till I was an adult, mm -hmm. um, having had a misspent uh, childhood. <laughs> um, so the, the, the point is, in, in The Magician's Nephew, for instance, Uncle Andrew is someone who is afflicted by this scientism. Uh, and we see how it, ultimately this scientism is uh, analogous to or even inseparable from the alchemy of the Middle Ages and therefore the magic 
of the Middle Ages, and how Queen Jadis, who's almost a satanic figure, is also representative of this scientism. So the connection, if you like, between the worship of science, the idolatry of science, uh, as something which has all the answers, is actually ultimately something which is deeply and ingrained in its evil. Mm. Uh, is there a, as you're uh, wrapping up the magician's nephew, uh, in what way does it point to the line, the witch in the wardrobe? Um, well, uh, there's uh, the, the first thing is that those of us, I mean, Tolkien included, that was somewhat irritated by, by sort of, if you like, uh, imaginative pollutants in, in Narnia, such as a lamppost. What on earth is a Victorian lamppost doing in in Narnia? <laughs> if we go to the Chronicles of Narnia, of course, when you know, when when uh, Lucy first goes through the wardrobe and arrives in Narnia, she sees this lamppost in the middle of the woods. Uh, doesn't it's incongruous, so we don't know why. And in real time, if we were living in the fifties, we have to wait some time because the magician's nephew, I think, was the sixth of the seven books, seven books to be written. So it'd be several years before we'd know the answer to that riddle. Right. But in the magician's nephew, we we, we, we we're actually told that that, that lamppost comes into Narnia uh, from from our world because it, it, it's it's brought there by by the wicked Queen Jadis, who then who then throws it at Aslan, and it and it basically grows like a tree because of the of the power of Aslan's creation. In Oxford, there's an actual lamppost that is often pointed to as the prototype for Lewis's uh, lamppost in uh, Narnia. Uh, it's in this uh, alley. Uh, I'm trying to recall exactly where it is really? now. I wish I'd known that. I've yeah. been to Oxford many times, uh, and I've, I've never knew that. I'm going to have to find out the details I'll, next time I'll, I'm there. I can do the pilgrimage to the lamppost. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I had never heard of that myself until I was just there uh, two months ago. My, my daughter and son-in-law pointed it out, and there's a whole bunch. There's a whole story behind it. Now, I, I never pursued it, but well, I'll, I'll mention it to you next time we talk, and you can you can yeah, give please. me the, the real truth of it. Um, the magician's nephew says this is the end of the story, the beginning of all the others. So when Lewis did write Magician's Nephew, he was thinking of it as the prior work. Is that right? Yes, I think, if you like, it was tying up loose ends. You know, if, yeah. if you join a world, if you enter a world, if you like, midstream, which is what the children do, and it's already got thousands of years of history, we want to know well, what, what, what happened at the beginning. I yeah. mean, Tolkien does the same thing. With, with the Silmarillion. Silmarillion. Right. Uh, and that's what that Lewis is doing there, basically, tying up loose ends by giving us the genesis of the whole world. Yeah. Um, what is the connection uh, between Tolkien's idea of the good catastrophe or eucatastrophe and the gospel understanding of the good news or uh, evangelium. Yeah, well, T Tolkien writes about this at some length in his essay or lecture on fairy stories, which was very influential upon C.S. Lewis, as I, as I discussed in some of my other books. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the, the idea is that the eucatastrophe is the good turn that, that turns a bad thing into something good. So it's actually uh, something very dynamic. So it's how the, uh, the crucifixion leads to the resurrection and how the fall leads to the incarnation. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually see, uh, if you like, that there's, a, there's something which is more powerful than suffering. And in, and in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, in the, in, um, the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, it's the difference between um, the deep magic from the dawn of time, which is justice, and the deeper magic from before the dawn of time, which is God's mercy and love. Um, so, so again, you know, the, 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 
before the fall, there is the there is the always the unfallen reality of God Himself, and so that, if you like, in the midst of all the sufferings of life and all the evils we have to deal with, that is the the eucatastrophe. That's the good news in the midst of the dark. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I've all, I always assume that everybody uh, in our audience has been is familiar with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and that's actually a false assumption. I, I, I actually run into people all the time who are unfamiliar with Lewis and uh, the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Most of us came to understand uh, the Chronicles of Narnia through the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. Why don't you take a moment and just talk to us a little bit about, uh, for those who are unfamiliar with Lewis and what he was uh, trying to accomplish there. Give us an idea of what he was trying to do with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which he wrote first, so I want to make that clear. This is before The Magician's Nephew. Yeah, he, Lewis says in one of his letters that you know, we live in such, a, such an uh, atheistic and uh, anti-Christian age that's hostile to the truth of the gospel that you have to, to use his phrase, you have to get past those watchful dragons. Yes. So Lewis did write these fairy stories as a means, if you like, of, of, of getting the Christian story uh, into the minds and hearts of children who otherwise might not have been introduced to it. So in the in the uh, line of which in wardrobe, what we see, if you like, reenacted analogically uh, is, the, is the death, um, the passion, and the resurrection uh, of Christ. And, and, and so, in that sense, you know, and I do, and I've actually met people, see, to me, it's obvious. I mean, as a Christian, uh, it's obvious that, yes. that that analogy is not difficult to see. But I've actually met people that read the Lord, read the line of which in the wardrobe as children that had no idea it was a Christian story. Right. So uh, you know, th- th- it does actually work um, that that people that have no, no no inkling whatsoever of the truths of the gospel can be introduced to them through this medium of fairy story. Yeah, I've I've met people who said that too, and I I read them as a Christian, and so for me it was it seemed obvious from the beginning. But um, yes, very good point. Listen, we just have about forty five seconds here. Your favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia. You're a professional. You've dealt with this material for years. Do you still love it? Oh, absolutely. I can return to it. I've certainly enjoyed the opportunity that having a daughter has enabled me to read it uh, again, twice with her, and to see it, if you like, anew through her eyes as well, which which, which, which is a blessing in itself. And as regards my favorite of the books, uh, the the final one, The Last Battle, the last 20 or 30 pages is some of the most deep theology uh, you're ever going to read in any book, adult or or, or for children. So I do encourage people to get to know the Chronicles of Narnia. Very good. I should mention, too, the book is dedicated to Evangeline. Thanks so much, Joseph. My pleasure. God bless you, Al.